Amen. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Good. It's good to see everyone. I'm excited for this morning to jump into God's word with you, but also um, just excited that uh, we get to do baptisms this morning. I love baptism uh, Sunday. And so um, we'll be doing that after the sermon. So we're going to continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, as you know, we have been studying the Gospel of Luke together uh, since the beginning of December. So that's the third book in your New Testament. And so if you want to go ahead and open to Luke chapter 3, we'll read from there in just a few moments together. And of course, you can use your phone app if you'd like, and the verses um, will also be on the screen behind me. Uh, you know, here at Grace Hill Church, we hold to what is called historic, orthodox, Protestant theology, if you want to put it that way. Basically, what that means is we, we believe what the early church believed ever since the ascension of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that one of the things that we believe is this thing called original sin. Here's what original sin is. Original sin is this theology, this idea, this belief that every single human being after Adam and Eve is born with an inherently sinful nature, uh, that there, there's something corrupt in the core of our being from birth that, that turns us against God, turns us against his word and causes us to live in ways that are more harmful than good. And obviously, it's, this is a doctrine, a belief that's kind of hard to swallow. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around that, to, to, to really see this as true. Because everything in us wants to believe that every person is not born with a sinful nature, but everyone's born with like a blank slate, right? Fresh start just nothing has corrupted it at all, completely blank slate, right? That there's nothing inherent to our being that's corrupt, but what happens is, is we eventually, as we grow up and interact with the world around us and other people, and we have experiences that are hard, that eventually those experiences from the outside in corrupt us, right? If there's anything bad in us, it's not from the end coming out, but it's, it's on the outside and it makes its way in. See, the, the world believes in the doctrine of what you could say is original righteousness, that we were born righteous. And if there's anything wrong with us, we didn't start that, but that comes from the influence of the world around us. That comes from somebody else. And therefore, someone else, something else is to blame. And so original sin can be a tough belief to accept. However, you see, I have a four and a five-year-old. Two innocent little children that could never do anything wrong, right? Blank slates they were born with. Uh, you know, as they've gotten older, one of the things that I have been trying to teach them is what does it mean to be a servant? Meaning, what does it mean to put other people's desires and wants and needs before their own? 
Now, this is a hard thing for us as adults to learn, so it's been a challenge to teach them this as well. So just this past week, right, for example, very small example, I try to teach this to my innocent children. Uh, I was fixing them some cereal for breakfast, got into the cabinet, and I pulled out a red bowl and a yellow bowl. Now, it's a known thing that my son, Leland, prefers the yellow bowl. It's his favorite color. And so, of course, my daughter saw me pull the yellow bowl out of the cabinet, and she instinctually cries out with a proud tone and loud enough to make sure Leland could hear, I call the yellow bowl, which, of course, then causes my son to flop on the ground in disappointment. Big fight now ensues. Daddy's trying not to get drawn into it. So after all parties calm down, including daddy, I have a little talk with my kids, trying to help them understand that it's, it's better to, to give up what you want, to love and serve others. So I was talking to my daughter, Christy, and I asked her a few questions. I said, Christy, sweetie, um, what color ball is Leland's favorite? Yellow. Is yellow your favorite ball? No, I like pink. But you said very loudly that you wanted the yellow bowl. Yes. Is that because Leland likes the yellow bowl? Yes. And you don't want Leland to have the bowl that he wants? No. Sweetie, why? Why is it that you don't want him to have what he wants and enjoy that? And she looks at me like, I don't know. (laughs) Right? How does that desire Like, I want to deprive you of what you want and enjoy. How does that desire find its way into a four-year-old? Right? I don't want him to have what he wants. For some reason, I want to deprive him of that joy. And and here's the thing. It's easy to see that in kids because they have less filters. But it's us and adults as well. Why do we get envious of other people and what they have, what they look like, what they can do? Why do we have this desire in us to have all these things and for others to not have what we have? Why do we get frustrated at other people's success? Why do we feel entitled to what other people have and and find it hard to be content with what we have? I'll confess, this is in my heart. I'm what they call in church world, I'm what they call a church planter. That means I helped plant a church. And if another church, so if you're new here at Grace Hill, we're about two and a half years old. We planted, we started this church in 2017. And if another church planter came to the town of Herndon and planted another church right across the street, and that church started to grow like crazy, and some of you decided, you know what, I really want to go and check that church out, I bet there would be some territorial junk in my heart. Maybe some envy, some frustration. Why would I be annoyed at another church reaching a town where there's a lot of people who are unchurched? We need more churches in this town. And so if another church came and more people are hearing God's word, more people are responding to the gospel, why would that annoy me? Isn't it about God's glory and not mine? Shouldn't I celebrate that? Why would that be a struggle for me? Because there is something 
inherent to our being that is corrupt. It's sinful. That likes to take our world and center it around ourselves. And when it seems like other people invade what we believe is ours, we get frustrated and envious. This describes perfectly the first sin in uh, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. God created a paradise for Adam and Eve. I mean, it was this perfect place to live, pure joy and harmony. God had one restriction, one command, don't eat from that particular tree. Now, God is God. He had the authority to say that. He had the right to give that command. And what happened is the enemy came and whispered in Adam and Eve's ear, why does God get to have authority over you? You should have what God has. How come he has authority and you don't? Why should he call the shots in your life? Why should your life be centered on his? Why can't it be the other way around and you be the center of things? And envy began to grow in Adam and Eve's heart over what God had. They wanted it. They didn't want to trust God. They wanted to be God. So they rejected him, disobeyed him, declared independence from him. God, we don't want to be associated with you. And the Bible teaches that from Adam and Eve, from that point on, the human race was now corrupted with sin, original sin. We are born with with hearts that are bent toward ourselves and against God and others. You could say it this way. Our motives have now been compromise our motives, right? We are people who can appear on the surface to be loving, to be patient, to be kind, to be righteous, but on the inside, our motives, our desires, our true feelings can be selfish, envious, manipulative, bitter. I think We saw a display of it this week at the conclusion of the impeachment trial. Don't worry. (laughs) Both parties declaring their impartial fidelity to the Constitution. Both parties accusing the other of evil partisanship. Both parties acting sanctimonious and righteously indignant. Both parties claiming that they are pure in their motive and the other is corrupt. We know what's going on. You can act a certain way on the surface, but there are other motives and agendas at play on both sides. You could almost say that Adam is like our representative. He sinned in this particular way First, and it corrupted the rest of the human race. We are Adam's descendants, and we have inherited this envious, sick, duplicitous heart from him. And this is the doctrine of original sin. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned in this way, read a little bit more in your Old Testament, and eventually what you'll see is that God gives his people this extensive law. 
A list of rules, regulations, rituals, traditions, feasts, regulations, all that stuff to follow. List, 600 plus laws. But there's a problem. If we have this ability to appear to be righteous on the outside and yet have corrupt motives on the inside, then how does a law, a list of regulations, actually address the problem? Right, go back to the example about my heart. If a church is planted across the street, and if I act excited, if I celebrate the planting of that church, if I lead our church to pray for and support that church, but on the inside, I'm angry and territorial, what does that say about me? It's here, we're gonna jump back into the Gospel of Luke together. And what we're gonna do is, is finish uh, chapter three together. We've been in chapter three for a couple of weeks. And so as we jump into chapter three, let me catch us up on where we are in the text. We have been reading about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is a prophet sent by God to announce that Jesus was coming. Jesus is here, and, and, and what John the Baptist is saying is you need to be prepared for the fact that Jesus is here. That's what he was saying to everybody in Israel. And the way that John called upon everyone to prepare themselves for the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is he called upon everyone to be baptized as an act of repentance. And if you remember a few weeks back, we, we talked about this. We talked about how this was actually a pretty controversial thing for John to call upon people to do. Because at the time, baptism wasn't practiced as we practice it today. Uh, baptism was a part of the process. It's a process called proselyte baptism of how a Gentile, a non-Jew, would convert to Judaism. So during that time, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to embrace Jewish teachings. Obviously, if you're a male, you had to be circumcised. And then you had to be baptized as a kind of washing away your non-Jewish uncleanliness. See, in the Old Testament law, there are tons of cleanliness laws, purity laws, all of these laws about how to be cleansed and, and all these things being clean and pure before God. And so Jews who followed the law to the T considered themselves to be clean because they followed these cleanliness laws. So here's what's controversial is John the Baptist is out there calling upon devout Jews to be baptized in order to be prepared for the arrival of Jesus. He's saying, I know you follow the law, I know you follow all the cleanliness laws, but you still need to be washed. You still need to be cleansed if you want to be prepared for Jesus. And so why? Why is John saying that? Why is he making that announcement in the way of how people prepare themselves for the arrival of Jesus? Well, it's the same reason that hundreds of years before this was written, God said in the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13, God said this about his people, about the Jews, the Israelites, these people say they are mine, 
They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. So you have, a, you, have a, you have a bunch of people who follow this law. They got their list of laws. They're checking the boxes every day. Check, 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 check. So they look righteous. They act righteous. If you saw them, you would think they were righteous, but their hearts on the inside are corrupt. And John is saying that when the Messiah comes, he's not going to judge you by your performance when it comes to how you keep all of these laws. He's going to judge you by your heart. And even though you keep this law, your heart is sick. Your heart is unclean. It needs to be washed. You need to confess and repent of that. So with that setup, let's, let's jump into the text. Luke 3, I'm gonna start in verse 15. I'm gonna read just through verse 20 for right now. Verse 15, it says this. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, because he's out there proclaiming the good news that Jesus is coming, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John is out here declaring a message about Jesus, and this is not a very popular message. It's good news, as the text says, but it's not a popular message. What we know is that John had a few rebukes for Herod that did not make King Herod happy. Add on top of the message that he's proclaiming, and eventually John found himself in prison for what he was preaching but I want us to all make sure we understand the picture of Jesus that John the Baptist just presented. First, John says that he himself is not even worthy to untie the, the strap of Jesus' sandal. Um, in Jewish tradition, uh, students and disciples of a rabbi were expected to almost treat their rabbi as a master and be a servant to them. But it would have been beneath a disciple to have to untie the strap of their rabbi's sandal. That was too much for them to do. And so what John is saying is that I'm not even, as a prophet called by God, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of Jesus' sandal. So the first thing that John says about Jesus is that Jesus is not simply just another teacher or prophet coming on the scene declaring a message from God like the other prophets. No, Jesus is the son of God. And he is going to baptize you, not symbolically with water like we're gonna do. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We'll get to what that means in just a second. But in other words, do not be flippant about your encounter with Jesus. 
This one is holy and glorious. Don't be flippant about when he comes. And secondly, we read that Jesus has his winnowing fork in his hand, and he's ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, this is an illustration that's commonly used all throughout Scripture, right? When you're winnowing grain, a farmer, you're, you're, you take this fork, you throw grain up into the air, and the wind kind of blows and carries the chaff, all the useless stuff away, and the, used, the, the grain that you would use would fall to the ground. And Jesus says, in the same way, a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff, Jesus is going to separate those who worship him with a pure heart and those who have a corrupt heart. And the chaff will be burned in unquenchable fire as their judgment. In other words, Jesus isn't going to judge you by your law keeping. Jesus is going to judge you by your heart. And this is something we see Jesus do all over the Gospels. Right, let me read you some scriptures. I don't have these on the screen because I'm going to read them fast because I just want you to listen. Right? Like if you remember this in Matthew 6, 5 to 6, just listen. Jesus says, and when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, uh, the people who act like they do everything right, but in their hearts they're all twisted up. Don't be like them, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. That's what their heart is about. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and he will see you. Or when Jesus says later in Matthew 6, and when you fast, do not look gloomy, like the hypocrites, like, oh, I haven't eaten in three days. I'm so pious. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Because truly I say to you, they've received their reward already because people gave them some applause. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. Your Father will see it in heaven. Or in Mark 12, Jesus says, beware of the scribes, these religious elites who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, you know, reverend this, bishop that, and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. He says, these people who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they'll all receive greater condemnation. That's what Jesus says. One more, Mark 12, Jesus says, well, it said, and Jesus sat down the opposite of the treasury in the temple, watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Called his disciples over to him and said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those rich people combined for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has given everything she had. It wasn't about what she put in. It was about her heart. And if anything is clear about Jesus' ministry, it's that he has not a concern with how one appeared to be following the law. It didn't concern him. He was concerned about the condition of the heart. And John the Baptist is saying that Jesus has arrived, winnowing fork in hand, ready to judge the heart. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. Because my heart's not pure. My heart has wicked motives inside of it. Pride, ego, wanting the praise of others for my piety. Threatened when others get something I want. Territorial when someone infringes on what is mine. Frustrated when someone doesn't do what I want them to do. Irritated when I don't get my way. And I don't think there's one person in this room who would be comfortable if every thought in their heart and every motivation they had was displayed for all to see. I don't think there's one person in this room who believes that if Jesus truly judges based on the purity of one's heart, that we would escape. I, I know I wouldn't. And so as we return to our text, with this tension, something unexpected happens. Let's read verses 21 and 22 together. Luke 3. It says, now when all the people were baptized, it says, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Luke records this episode kind of quickly, so don't, don't miss what just happened. Jesus, the guy that John is saying is coming to bring the kingdom of God, he's the Messiah. The guy who has the winnowing fork in hand, ready to separate the wheat and the chaff. The guy whom John is unworthy to even untie his sandal. The one who is going to judge us based on our heart. This guy comes on the scene and gets baptized. This was unexpected. Uh, and the Gospel of Matthew records this a little bit. Look at this, Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Same episode, just different account. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So what we see here from Matthew is Jesus got in the water to be baptized and John the Baptist is like, whoa, 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 wait, that's not the plan. Like, where's the winnowing fork, right? Like, Jesus, I'm not gonna baptize you. Like, you baptized me. And Jesus said, no, John, do it. And said he consented. So why did Jesus need to be baptized? Did Jesus need to repent? Did Jesus need to be cleansed, to be washed? What's going on here? It seems as if, like we just said, John the Baptist was surprised by this. We thought Jesus was gonna come on the scene ready to judge people by their heart, separating wheat from chaff. We gotta be prepared and ready for this moment when he comes on the scene. Who are the true worshipers and who are not? Who are the corrupt people and who are not? 
Who are the people who are actually righteous versus just the self-righteous? We thought this is what Jesus was going to do. But instead, Jesus comes on the scene and steps into the water. He didn't arrive on the scene presenting himself better than everybody else. He arrived on the scene just like everybody else. See, Jesus didn't come for those who were already righteous because they don't exist. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness like we just read in Matthew. And that is such a crucial difference. If you wanna understand the gospel and what it means to follow Jesus, you have to understand that difference. Like this is why you don't need to be afraid to confess your sin to God and for your heart to be exposed to God because it already is. You don't need to be afraid to bring your struggles into the light. You don't have to be afraid to expose the true condition of your heart. You don't need to pretend that you're more righteous than you really are. You don't need to act as if you're more spiritual than you really are. Because Jesus didn't come for those who could pass a righteousness test. Jesus came to be righteous on your behalf, in your place. Because he knows our hearts have been corrupted. And we don't need behavior management or a list of laws to follow. We need a new heart. And so Jesus comes and he, and he lives the life that God commanded us to live. He fulfills all righteousness. He fulfills every part of the law on your behalf in your place. And Jesus goes to the cross where God's anger against my sin and your sin and all injustice is poured out upon him. So Jesus fulfills every part of God's judgment against your sin in your place. And Jesus is laid down in the grave, faces death, pays off the debt of our sin, and therefore defeats death, rising again from the dead. He fulfills everything that needs to be done so he can now grant you eternal life. And so Jesus is not looking for the pure in heart. Jesus is looking for the humble who will confess their need for a savior because they know they're not righteous. Favorite verse in scripture, Galatians 2.20 says, uh, I, I have been crucified with Christ. My sin, my old self, who I was, was nailed on the cross alongside with Jesus. And today it's no longer I who live, but it's now Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so what this means is that if you call upon Jesus as your savior, when Jesus went to the cross, you and your old self went to the cross. And that corrupt heart went to the cross. And when Jesus went into the grave, you and your old self was laid down in the grave. And when Jesus started to breathe again, and the blood started to pump back through his veins, and when he got up out of that grave and rose to new life, new life flooded into your heart 
eternal life, no longer corrupt, reconciled to God. And the life that Jesus lived that fulfilled all righteousness is now yours. It's your life pulsing through your veins. So when God sees you, he sees the life that Jesus lived in your place. Because the Bible says you are now united to Jesus. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is now your resurrection. And you now have a new heart that's no longer corrupt, but has been given new redeemed life. Right? This is why John says in verse 16 of our text that what Jesus is going to do is baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit. His Spirit will live inside of you and you will belong to him. And so Jesus gets baptized as a part of living in your place and in my place. And the text says, that after he is baptized, a voice came from heaven and it was God the Father who said, that's my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know what the difference is between the wheat and the chaff? Uh, The wheat is the people who confess their need for Jesus. That the people who have placed their faith in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in his resurrection, the people who know that they have corrupt hearts and they can't be righteous. I'm not gonna pull it off by trying to follow all of the laws. They need Jesus to fulfill righteousness for them. And the chaff are those who live their life trusting in themselves and not trusting in Jesus. And there are going to be many in that category who see themselves as Christians, who will be a part of the chaff. Because on the outside, they acted all spiritual. They did. It seemed like everything right. But on the inside, they never confessed the true condition of their heart and believed they actually needed Jesus to save them. And so this is why we do baptisms today. When someone calls upon Jesus as their savior, places their faith in Jesus, in his life, and in his death, and in his resurrection, we we baptize them today. But it's not the same kind of baptism that John the Baptist was doing. The baptism that we do today, it's a celebration. It's an illustration of something that has already occurred in the person's life when they cried out to him to save him. It's their public proclamation that they now trust in Jesus for their salvation and not themselves and their ability to be spiritual and do everything that we're supposed to do. Because when they step into the baptismal waters, it's like their old self steps into that tank. And that old corrupt heart gets in there. And when we lower them under the water, fully immersing them, it's like their old self is being lowered into the grave alongside of Jesus. And when we bring them out of the water, it's like new life coming out of the water. They are rising as Jesus rose from the dead with new, redeemed, righteous life. So in baptism, we're celebrating what has already occurred when that person 
cried out to Jesus when they go under the water and they come up a brand new person, united to Jesus. That's why I'm so excited to celebrate baptisms with you in just a few short minutes. But before we do that, I just want, just let me push us a little further in our text this morning. If you go back to Luke chapter three and we get to verse 23 is where we're at. Look what it says. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, so after he was baptized, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then what you see happen through the, all the way through verse 38 is we get the genealogy of Jesus. It's a list of names. All the way to Adam. So this is normally a part of scripture that many would just skip over. It's just a list of names. It's historically helpful that Luke gives us uh, this list. Matthew gives us a genealogy as well. But what we do get here is a genealogy from Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now here's why this is so important. We mentioned in the beginning that with Adam's sin in the garden, the rest of humanity inherited his corrupt, sinful nature, right? Original sin. That Adam was like our representative. In a sense, you could say that we were all born united to Adam. And Luke wants us all to know that Jesus is now the new Adam. If you trust in Christ and your life is united with his, he, Jesus, is now your representative. You have now inherited his righteousness, his inheritance, not Adam's anymore, right? Romans 5.17 makes this clear. It says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. When you are born, you're united to Adam, but when you are born again, you're now united to Jesus. And so I have to ask before we close in just a minute, have you trusted in Jesus with your heart? Not, not just with your actions, not with just starting to plug in a bunch of religious works and activities. Like, have you trusted in Jesus with your heart? Because looking to all of those spiritual acts and things, as good as many of them are, looking to those things, it doesn't change your heart. You'll, you'll be like the ones John was talking about. On the outside, you do everything right, but on the inside, your, your heart, it hasn't changed. And so I'm just curious, is that you this morning? Uh, you know, discovering your true self, getting past all the hard things of your past that have impacted you, it's not gonna change your heart either. Uh, what other way do we have of dealing with our corrupt hearts than, than Jesus, than someone living in our place, dying in our place, going into the grave and, and rising again in our place. So Jesus did not come for the righteous. He did not come for those who discovered their true self. He came for the humble who say, Jesus, I, I need you to save me. I can't do it. 
And you could be one of those people this morning if this morning you would humble yourself and cry out to him. Just curious, what would stop you right now from doing that if you haven't already? And so before we celebrate baptisms together in just a few minutes, I, I wanna pray. And I wanna pray for you, if that's you in this room. And if you need to cry out to Jesus this morning and ask him to save you, you can pray along with me in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, as we began this morning, we confess to you that we have hearts that are corrupt, hearts that are envious and selfish. We have this duplicitous way of ourselves where we can act a certain way on the outside, but on the inside be all twisted. There's not one of us, God, who this isn't true of. So God, what that tells us is that we, we can't change ourselves. We can't change our heart. We can't just decide one day to to insert enough willpower into our life to change the motives of our heart. It's impossible. So God, we need, we need, we need to be saved. We, we need rescue from ourselves. And so Lord, if there's anyone in this room today who is not truly in the deepest, most honest, genuine place of their heart, not cried out to you and asked for that salvation, I pray this morning would be the morning. And if that's you, you just pray a prayer like this to God from the genuine place of your heart. You just say, God, I, I confess it. It's, it's true. My, my heart is corrupt and I can't change it myself. As hard as I try, I confess I can't change it. And God, the Bible is so clear that you look to the heart, not just the outside. And if that is true, God, what hope do I have? Jesus, I need you to save me. I, I need your life to, to be credited to mine. I, I need your death on the cross to take care of my sin because there's no other way for my heart to change. And I believe in that. And God, I wanna put my faith in that this morning. Help me to know what it means to follow you in genuine honesty with the rest of my life. So God, I just pray for those. If there's anyone who in this morning just just prayed that in their heart, Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to walk alongside of them, to help them grow in their walk with you for the rest of their lives. And Lord, I pray this morning as we get the joy and the privilege to see two baptisms, that, Lord, it would just encourage them that, Lord, you really do change people's lives and that every single salvation is a miracle performed by you. We love you, God. We thank you for your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.